0: Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. There is something about us wanting to model that in the church. It's wonderful because outside of the church, there has been a breakdown of family. So there isn't that kind of understanding of appropriate relationships and so sometimes people don't know what appropriate relationships are like because they've never experienced them well we want to be able to bring that into the church and so what does it mean for me to father um uh, a, a across the church rather than you know i've got my children but how do how do we play that role across the church so we're wanting to to, to make that a priority for us as as a as a as a church as a community of people and then the last one is the priority of mission. And it's, it's looking at how we reach out, how we, how we focus our energies, because again, as, a, as, as not a large church, how do we focus our energies so that we're not trying to do a million things? Um, it, 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 was, it was, I can't remember how we came to it, but the idea of partnership has meant that we have been able to sustainably be involved in Food Bank for eight years and to be doing CAT for the last four years and they have not overwhelmed us. I'm not saying we're not busy, but they have not overwhelmed us. So how do we, how do we um, reach out, focus on fewer things, doing them as well as we can, use our limited resources with a, gr- a growing clarity of vision and mission? How do we ensure that we get our priorities right? So we're thinking about that in terms of, in terms of our mission and our vision and what are we doing. And I think that our weekend away will be um, an important aspect of that for us. So we normally do a weekend away. Last year we did a weekend at home, which was great. But this year we're, we're, we're going back to High Lees in the first weekend of May. And I, I think it's going to be a significant weekend for us. Because I think we're in a season um, um, of the life of the church where God is, God is changing preparing us for whatever he has next i I, I think that's where we are i don't think we're just it's like run of the mill i think that god is preparing and changing us for what uh, we have what is to come for us and i think our weekend will be an important part of of galvanizing that and understanding that now our weekends they they follow a very similar pattern you know friday night we do some stuff saturday morning we do some stuff Saturday night, and then Sunday morning. And uh, I'm aware it happens every year. Every, every year, I don't know why it is. Every year, people have babies around our weekend. I don't know why, why that is, but um, it, that has happened more than once. And I know it's happening again this year. Um, but I want to encourage you, even if you can only make one of the days because there are, ver- there are things in your life that mean you can't be there for the weekend, I really want to encourage you to come if you can. Um, for at least a day, but hopefully for the whole weekend because I do think that's going to be a significant time for us. Last summer, there was a little bit where our journey took a different course. I had a conversation at New Day with a couple of the other key leaders there and I felt that God began to lead us in a, in a, in a slightly different direction to the one that we had been thinking. Not that our vision had changed, but our, how we were going to outwork that was, was looking a bit different. Um, and I felt very specifically during that time that God almost spoke to me about allowing the process to unfold, whatever that was, and that he was in it, and it it really feels to me like God is shaping us for the next season of church life, And, and there are challenges for us in terms of resources and finances, but as I say, there is this growing sphere of influence that just seems to be Um, emerging, that we seem to be stepping into. And um, I don't want us to not realize that that's happening, that you're in a church, albeit small, but has this growing sphere of influence in a number of different areas and in a number of different ways. So I just wanted to update us on that. Hannah, I wanted you to come forward. And Hannah's just going to read something, something of the the prophetic. Many of us have heard this before, but I want her to read it and then just to Pray into it.
1: Okay. Um, So this is a prophetic word that was given to um, Beacon some time ago now. It says this. I believe the Lord wants to talk to you about finance and resources. There's going to be a resource anointing. I believe God is going to begin to add key people of business and influence to you that will give you key footing for resources to the point where Beacon is a resource for others. Where there might be poverty, there will be wealth. And even where um, there will be the context of much wealth, there will be a connection with those that are poor and broken and destitute. And the Lord has given you an anointing for mercy and for justice. God is going to establish his throne on these two things, mercy and justice. God is going to establish, sorry, God is going to add to Beacon those who will fight for justice and the poor and the broken and the marginalized. God is going to give Beacon a voice in strategic places, even places of government and places of influence and where traditionally the church hasn't had a voice. God is going to release the people of Beacon to be countercultural in places of influence and have an impact in the most unsuspecting places. And I see lawyers. Lawyers are going to join you and those who work in law and will speak on behalf of those like asylum seekers, but also in terms of helping shape policies. God is going to break open local areas of wealth in a significant way because God is going to make you a resourcing base. I feel that, Owen, you are not to underestimate your gifting and the call of God upon your life because God is building an apostolic base, a base that will resource many other places. God is unlocking dreams you have in the next season. Owen and Pauline, there is going to be a working together between you in breaking into places of wealth and influence. I see you at dinner parties and wealthy arenas, and you're going to say, how did we get here? What are we doing here? And it's because you're going to be able to apostolically influence and break into places and pioneer where others couldn't. There's going to be incredible political connections. God's going to add people around you that will have influence in politics. God's going to use you in starting to influence that area. And he doesn't despise these days of small beginnings because I am building something much bigger, much larger than you anticipate. I feel that God wants to say to you that you're going to move from a place of obscurity to a place of influence. He's going to expose what you are doing to many influential people. In the Bible, David's famous men and women And similarly, God is going to add famous men and women to Beacon and to what Beacon is doing, and you will see breakthrough. God is taking you into a new season, into a season of advance, from a season where I feel there's been attack, where there's been shaking of the foundation and losing of heart. But today, God says, I restore hope, vision, and faith, because today... A season of advance and breaking out the boundary lines is coming. I even see a a Macedonian call from other churches for Beacon to help them, to shape them. Father God, thank you that you speak to us, that you guide us. God, that this church is in your hands. This is your church and your people, Lord. Thank you that we can trust you and give our hearts and our lives to you, Lord, knowing that you lead us and guide us, Father. Thank you that you see much bigger things in people and situations than we can in our human eyes, Lord. Lord, we pray, God, for these incredible things that you want to do, Father. We pray that mercy and justice would be a foundation, Lord, of what we do, God. We pray that we may know your incredible justice and mercy, Lord, that we may pass that on to others, Father. We just come to you again this morning, God, and we say, Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours, Jesus. Lord, may we be your feet and your hands, Lord, wherever it may be, God, and may us not put any sort of boundaries or boxes on who you are and what you do, Lord, that we may not see our, the size that we are or where we are, God, and limit the all-powerful, incredible God and the, the miraculous, world-changing things that you want to do, God, even with us, Lord. We pray for hope, Lord. We pray that you would restore vision and you would build faith in us this morning, God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
2: Wow, that feels like a moment, doesn't it? let me just encourage you, if you're one of those people who sometimes thinks about the weekend away, well, maybe. This year it feels like it's a significant one for us. I know we probably say that every time. Alicia's nodding. You say that every time. But maybe that's a good thing because actually what that shows us is that God is significant all the time. We are... Uh, In the middle of a series, we've just started a series last week, looking at the crucifixion, the significance of that again. And uh, for those of us who sometimes are just, uh, if you like, soaked in church life and in the Bible as most of us who are sitting here probably are, maybe not all, but most of us who are sitting here are fairly soaked in the Bible, soaked in church life, have been all our lives or for a long time. We can hear things like, we're going to look at the crucifixion, we're going to look at the cross again, and it's difficult to work up any level of enthusiasm for it, if we're honest. (laughs) Because we've sort of heard it so many times before. And are we going to hear anything that's going to be any different today? The Bible says things like there's nothing new under the sun. One well-known preacher says we should preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection to ourselves every day. And so actually, like Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus because it is the power of God For them that believe. So, as we hear this again today, as we hear some stuff we'll have heard before, let's expect Him to do stuff in us, to encourage us, to provoke us, to challenge us, to bless us. We're going to read first. So, Bill, that's a slightly different order on the slides, but we're going to read first uh, from the book of Romans. And the the theme for today is looking at the crucifixion as the means of deliverance from the power of sin. Deliverance from the power of sin. So we're going to read a small passage from the book of Romans where Paul is sort of trying to unpack a little bit what that power of sin is like for him. He's telling a very sort of personal story about his personal struggle with sin. And as we read it, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I think, boy, I can associate with this. So let's read this small passage together and then I'll pray and then we'll get going. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But the very thing I hate, I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law... wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord let's pray Father we thank you for your precious word we thank you that it doesn't pull punches we thank you that it reveals the deep insides of us it brings such insight to what we are like as human beings and it puts its finger on the very things that we struggle with and then it gives us hope And so we pray that there will be hope that comes from today and deliverance from the power of sin for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2018, a photograph that had never been publicly seen before went to auction. It was the photograph of a little girl called Rosa Benil Ninau It was a photograph taken in 1933 of her with Adolf Hitler. It's the top photograph. She had been outside of Hitler's home called the Berkhof in the Bavarian Alps with her mother and crowds of other people on the day of his birthday. Adolf Hitler learnt that Rosa's birthday was the same as his and so he invited her and her mother up to the Birkhoff, his home in the Alps. A friendship developed between this little girl and Adolf Hitler, and this went on for at least five or six years. She wrote to him backwards and forwards for uh, about 17 letters, went backwards and forwards, and visited him, I believe, a number of times. It was soon discovered, however, that this little girl's grandmother was Jewish. However, Adolf Hitler, despite his hatred for the Jews, decided on this occasion to overlook it. It was only when this fact that she was part Jewish came to light to some of his advisors that his Personal private secretary went to the family and told them that they were to cut off any further links with the Fuhrer. Adolf Hitler said, There are people who have a true talent for spoiling my every joy. A caption underneath the second picture described this little girl as Hitler's sweetheart. It said it delighted him to see her at the Berkhof until some busybody found out that she was not of pure Aryan descent. Adolf Hitler oversaw a regime that murdered six million Jews and led the world into a war that killed between 70 and 85 million people. His aim was to produce a master race free from any flaw or fault. And yet, and yet, he formed a close bond with a little Jewish child and was angry and upset when this was brought to an end by his advisers. In January of the year 2000, Harold Shipman, a respected and well-loved GP who worked in a small town called Hyde near Manchester, was convicted of using prescription drugs to quietly murder 15 of his elderly patients. It's estimated that the final number of patients that Shipman murdered is nearer to 250. He is believed to have been the most prolific serial killer since written history began. A well-loved and respected family doctor. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian philosopher, a writer, historian, he wrote this. The line separating good and evil passes not through states or between classes or even between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. It passes through your heart, it passes through my heart. We are capable of doing great good and we're capable of horrendous evil. Maybe not on the scale of Adolf Hitler and Dr. Shipman, but nevertheless, all of us can identify that one moment we can be doing good and the next, like Paul says, It's like evil is crouching beside us. Sin is not a word that we would commonly use in society nowadays. Now, again, because many of us are used to church life, we've heard that term sin, and we're used to it, and we've sort of got some sense of what it means. But actually, that word sin is not a word that is commonly used in society today. The actual word sin, the translation of that word, sin, means to miss the mark or to fail to reach a standard. So it comes originally from the Greek, which would be, I suppose, miss the mark. It means like you're firing your arrow and you're constantly missing where you're aiming for it then becomes unpacked to become something around failing to meet a standard. The reason probably why it's quite difficult for us as Christians to talk about the concept of sin in society and with our friends and, and the workplace or with other people we talk to, the reason it's probably quite difficult for us to do that is because actually when we think about meeting a standard, well, it's like there isn't one anymore. Our society doesn't really believe in an ultimate authority anymore. So, as as we were hearing before through some of the prayers before, actually we, we know that some time ago, the laws of this land were based on the Bible. There was a sense in which most people in this land, whether they followed him or not, would probably have acknowledged that they believed there was a God And that that he was the ultimate authority. A sense that there was and there was a creator, that we are not just the product of some sort of um, random evolutionary uh, journey, but that actually there there was a creator behind all of this. There would have been a sense in this land and in many lands where that, that was true. And therefore, if that's true, well, surely that creator has the right to set the standard. But now we live in a nation that doesn't really accept that anymore, that's turned away from from that, and now the standards are set, well, they're set by me. I set my own standards, really, so I'm only just living up to my standard. I, I miss the mark if I don't live up to really what I've set for myself. Or what's been set, by committee somewhere or by s- social media or actually famous people sometimes are setting the standard these days. I was listening to the radio the other day and they were interviewing someone and she was, in, she was introduced, I'd never heard this term used before, she was introduced as a presenter, so she was obviously was a, a presenter on the radio or the television, I'd never heard of her before. She was introduced as a presenter and an influencer. Oh Boy, I didn't no, people had that on their job description. Description. I am an influencer. <laughs> there is this sense now in our nation that you set your own standards. And therefore, do you know what? When we talk to other people about this thing, this odd alien thing called sin, it's difficult to explain it because, well, you know, I don't, there isn't a standard to miss. Sin only makes sense when we know that actually there is a standard that is set by a creator and it's that that we have to meet whether we like it or not. Paul says that the law was given so that we would become conscious of sin. It talks about the Ten Commandments. So in the Bible, we have the Ten Commandments. Anybody remember them? So let's see if we can get all of them. Right, now that's one that's often quoted as one of the Ten Commandments. Actually, it's, it, it's not one of the Ten Commandments, believe it or not. No other God before me. No, not, not love your neighbour as yourself. No, that's not a, one of the Ten Commandments. Honour your father and mother, too. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not, kill. Do not murder. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. Not honor, the honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Seven.
0: <laughs>
2: have no graven no. image, and otherwise don't have any idols. Two more. All right, we've had honor our father and mother. Do not bear false witness. Yeah. One more. Now we've had adultery. Well, we, yeah. Hopefully, we haven't had. <laughs> hopefully, we haven't had adultery. <laughs> Wipe that off the tape. You get the idea. Ten commandments, which are there for us to become aware of what the standard is. Paul sort of says, actually, that the, the, the Ten Commandments are not just given, were not given because there was any expectation that we would be able to meet them in our own strength, but to make us aware of what the standard is and so that we become aware of what sin is and what it is that grips us as human beings. In that passage that we just read from Romans, lots of the words that are used relate to slavery, and sin is slavery. It uses terms like this, sold, Paul uses this term, sold under sin. In one of the other um, translations of the New Testament, it actually says sold as a slave, sold under sin. He says, I do not do what I want. If you're a slave, you don't do what you want, can't. You're, you're, you're controlled, you're owned by another. I do not do what I want. I have. He writes, I have the desire, but not the ability. A slave's like that. Okay. A slave has the desire to do things, but no, they're out on the plantation. Sorry, you might desire to do that, but I own you, you're out there. I have the desire, but I don't have the ability. He says, sin is making me captive. I'm captive to the law of sin. Lots of the phraseology that Paul uses in that passage about how he grapples and struggles with sin in his life is around being a slave. He's a slave to it. I watched the other day. I'd never, I'd never actually seen it from start to end. I'd seen clips, but not, never seen the film from start to end. I watched the film 12 Years a Slave. Anybody seen that? Yeah, quite a lot of people have seen that film. I mean, ho- horrific, really. A tr- we know it's a true story, story of this guy, Solomon Northup, a, f- a free African-American who's then kidnapped uh, in the a- 1850s from u- upstate New York, taken to the Deep South, where he's just sold into slavery. He has absolutely no rights. And watching that film as he tries every which way to get back, to get out of it, to send messages... He's he's betrayed by people who he gives letters to. Word gets back to the slave owner that he's trying to get away. He's beaten again and again. He has no rights. In the end, he's kowtowed by it all. No rights. Everything taken away. As human beings, we are born into this slavery. It is our reality It's interesting watching that film. When you watch that film, 12 Years a Slave, you you see how um, some children were were born into slavery. How slave owners would literally find their two most robust-looking slaves and just mate them, like a farmer would mate his best bull with his best cow to get the best calf horrific. And these children are then born into slavery. They know nothing else. They they are born without rights, without freedom, without choice. That's what Paul's saying. Sin is. That's how we are. That's how every human being since Adam is. Sometimes we look at our friends, our work colleagues, people in the world, and we think, oh, well, they're, not, they're not so bad. But the reality is that every person is a slave to sin. Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to it. We're powerless, it's universal. The Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It is something we inherit, and it's also something for which we bear our own responsibility. It's not just that I inherit it because I'm a human being, and therefore I sort of can't take the blame for it, because if it's in my DNA, well, what choice did I have? But James, in his letter, says this, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. But what about that argument that we might have about good people in the world? I have to be honest with you, I'm challenged by that. I probably know and certainly hear about people in the world who do a whole lot more good than I do. A whole lot more who spend hours and hours of their time uh, on charitable work, who give themselves to going to other nations and digging wells so that people have clean water, who will run marathons to raise thousands of pounds to send a sick child to America to have a life-saving operation. I haven't done anything like that. There are massively good people out in the world. There are people that do massively good things. How can it be that they are slaves to sin? How can it be that there is a consequence where the Bible says the wages of sin is death? How can that be for them? They do a whole heap more than, better than I do. But when we look at it that way round, what we're doing is once again we're applying our standards and not God's standards to sin. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. When I look at someone who's just doing so much better than me and I feel challenged by that and I think, how can it be that it's because I'm applying my standard? And God has a different standard. And against his standard, Mother Teresa falls short. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. Sin is universal. It is slavery. We cannot escape it. It brings huge consequence. We see it ourselves in our own lives, where it's messed us up and other people that we touch. We see it around this locality. We see it in our friends, we see it in broken relationships. We see it everywhere. We see the consequence of sin everywhere. But the consequence of sin is also eternal. And that's something we don't tend to talk very much about. We don't sort of talk much about the eternal consequence of sin. Partly, probably, because in our scientific 21st century, is it hell? I mean, come on well, you really, you still believe in that stuff? Mate, that's pie in the sky when you die. But Jesus spoke about hell more than any other individual in the New Testament. And we know his descriptions of it are, are, are sobering. Eternal, weeping, gnashing of teeth, separation from God. Not annihilation, not just not just that actually if, if, if you're saved, then you get heaven. If you're not, you just you finish when you breathe your last breath. But no, and it's something that lasts for eternity. The Bible talks about us being eternal beings. Every person that you bump into is an eternal being. And they'll end up spending that eternity one way or another. Eternal beings we are. And I can't pay. I can't, I'm powerless. I can't do anything to get out of this. You see, I inherit all of this from my father, Adam. And because of his sin, that's then come down every generation since, it's now in my DNA. And no matter what level of genetic engineering a scientist might do, they can't write that out of my DNA or my children's DNA. And actually, I I can see it there, because when I look at my children, or if you look at your children, I see it coming out before they can even walk. First word, no. there. We might not like it because we love our children, but actually it's there. Our children have been born into slavery. I can't pay. I can't set up some sort of repayment plan with God. I don't have any currency that is of any interest to him. It would be like me working my socks off to pay off my sin debt and ending up coming to God with a barrow full of mud and saying, here you are. And he says, yeah, but I'm not interested in that. It's in that context that the writer in the Bible writes, my righteous acts are as filthy rags. So my going over to that country in Africa to dig a a well, my giving myself to building a hospital in a a deprived area, me choosing to become a social worker and to give my professional life to helping others, my righteous acts, filthy rags. They're not a currency that... God's interested in I can't repay I can't get out of this slavery now here's the thing God is not shocked by my sin he's not shocked by it he's angry at sin He will judge sin. Now, when people ask you that question about how can a loving God send people to hell, we sort of only have to trace that argument back a little bit and say, so would you expect a loving God To let an unrepentant Adolf Hitler off the hook, then? Is that okay? Is that okay? God is angry at my sin, He will judge my sin. But he's not shocked by my sin. And the reason he's not shocked is he knew about it all along. And that's why in the cross his action plan comes to fruition. Because it is at the cross where he is just, where he punishes the sins of an Adolf Hitler and a Dr. Shipman and a me in his son now I don't know I doubt it whether Adolf Hitler or Dr. Shipman before he hung himself in prison in 2008 came to a point of repentance I somehow doubt it and what that means is that the full weight of the wrath of God falls on them in eternity just as it will fall on every single one of us unless, unless we receive what Jesus did on the cross for us. Paul writes this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God is not shocked by your sin. He knew about it from the start, and he acted on your behalf. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul talks in Timothy, I'm going to finish with this, about always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope you profess. Always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer. This passage that we've looked at today, where Paul talks about the grappling with sin and the slavery of sin, do you know what, it just helps a little bit. The question we ask our friend who says, you, you still believe in this stuff called sin? I mean, come on. The answer to that friend is, well, yeah, if, there's, if there's no God, then yeah, there's no such thing as sin because I set my own standards. But just think for a moment, suppose there was. Suppose there was and he set the standard. How, how, would, you be, how would you, where would you be then? How, how would, what would your answer be, be then to him? Always be prepared to give an answer. final reading from John this is what John's gospel says and maybe we'll sing something can we sing something I don't mind what we sing yeah you right. yeah you'll come up with something but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God listen who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man but of God. If I believe in him for my righteousness, if I receive him, the Bible talks about me being in him. It means I'm no longer in Adam anymore. I'm not a slave to sin anymore because I'm not In Adam anymore. I'm now in Christ, the only perfect God-man who walked the planet. And his DNA was completely different. It was perfect. And that means that I now, before the Creator, stand perfect and no longer does he see me as the one who doesn't meet his standard anymore because I'm clothed in Jesus who met his standard perfectly and that's how God now sees me. And now it's just a clean-up operation in my life. I still struggle with sin, but it's just a clean-up operation now. Because I'm not in that anymore. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm not in his DNA, in Adam's DNA anymore. I'm now in Christ's. Oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's what it means when we say those things again and again on a Sunday about we're in Christ. It means you're not a slave to that anymore. And it means when God looks at you, he doesn't look at that. And he doesn't look at you not having met the mark anymore because he looks at his son who did meet the mark in every possible way and that's how he now sees you. And now it's just a clean-up operation. And when we realize that, and when that truth seeps into us, we want to cooperate with his cleanup operation in us because we're grateful. And it's not a duty, and it's not a hardship, and it's not, a, I have to try and do this because then he'll accept me. No, he already accepts me, and so now I will cooperate with his cleanup operation because I want to be more like him. You're no longer slaves. We sing that song sometimes, don't we? We're no longer slaves to sin. Keep cooperating with his cleanup operation in you, but know that he looks at you like he looks at his son. Your DNA has changed. You're no, you're no longer a slave. And that's what the cross did to the power of sin. It broke it once and for all.